Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 72, an introduction to Gnosticism, part two of our historical heresies series, recorded Thursday, October 22nd of 2015, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. And you're sick. Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah. I have a... I'm not exactly sure what I have. It started out as upper respiratory issues, it moved into a really nasty stomach flu. Now it seems to be more of upper respiratory combined with a chest cold, but I am miserable. Yeah. So this is going to be a very Grant-centric episode tonight. Well, that might be okay, because this was largely going to be an info dump. In fact, I thought yeah. about doing this as a solo episode to give your voice a break, but nobody likes that. Well, I may as well show up, so... Fair enough. If nothing else, you can make comments as we go, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, one big note before we get started with our topic tonight. Our fundraiser for the Bodana Group is kicking off. This is the third fundraiser we've done for the Bodana Group, the fourth uh, since we started the podcast. We do one every year, November, December. We had a really good showing last year for the Bodana Group, which is awesome. One guy, in fact, was so kind as to set up a recurring donation every month to them, which is really, really awesome. Uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, very, very generous. If you have not heard anything about the Bodana Group, listen to episode 25. We did an interview with Jack Birkenstock. Uh, I was talking with Jack just recently. He's got a book that he is working on, going through the editing and kind of writing process. He's got someone else coming on to help write the book to speed up the process, because he's been promising to write that book since we talked to him a couple years ago. So It sounds like he's been in the process of writing it since we talked to him a couple of years ago. Oh yeah, he has. But of course, with everything else going on, he needed an extra set of typing hands and an extra brain working on it. So my understanding is, is he's brought someone on to help produce the book at a faster rate. Yeah, Jack Jack has a lot of other stuff going on. Yeah. Still, if you are not familiar with the Bodana Group, listen to episode 25. You will not be disappointed. Read up on uh, the link that we will put in the show notes. I don't have the fundraiser set up yet, but of course I will by the time this episode drops. So check that out. Get familiar with them and help us support them. I donate every year. Yeah, I typically do too. One thing I will say is I'm not doing a podcaster charity drive this year. I have too much on my plate, and it didn't get enough participation. I'm hoping next year to pick that back up, but this year, it's just us. So, be aware of that. Uh, one other note, if you like what we're doing here on this show, and I know from the feedback we've gotten on our Historical Heresies series... That, At least some of you do. Yeah, uh, more people than I expected do, honestly. Give us a review on iTunes, and share Saving the Game with your friends and other people who you think might be interested. Social media is great. We don't advertise on this show. You guys and word of mouth and people just happening across us somewhere is really all we do. So anything you guys do to say, hey, I like this, a recommendation like that goes an incredibly long way. So if you like what we do, share us out on whatever social media platform you prefer or tell other people about our show because that helps us even more. Also, along similar lines, we asked for this in our last episode too, but get in contact with us and let us know how you found us. 
we've been curious about where our listeners come from for a while. <clears throat> well, we have some anecdotal evidence of people that we've run into at conventions and stuff coming up and telling us. We still don't know for most of you, so... Yeah, you can tweet that at us, you can post it on our Facebook page, you can email us, hosts at stgcast.org. You can comment on the episode on our webpage. Another great way to get in touch with us for anything, really. So go ahead and do that. We'd really like to hear kind of where you guys are coming from. All right, before we wear Peter's voice out too much, let's do a pass at Scripture here, and then we'll get into our main topic. And I will take Deuteronomy, you take First Timothy, just so that you're only doing the one. Okay, that'll work. Yeah, you sound relieved. I think we've made the right choice here. Yes. Okay, so this is Deuteronomy 4, verse 39. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. And this is 1 Timothy 6, 20-21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. And the last is 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. So, tonight we are talking not about any specific Gnostic heresy, but rather I wanted to do an introduction to Gnosticism in general. We're going to be talking about specific Gnostic heresies going forward, but Gnosticism is fairly complicated. Complicated enough that you have about, what, three pages of notes here? Yes, and this is me trying to reduce it as best I can. Gads, I had no idea. Well, the thing about Gnosticism is that there are a lot of different versions of Gnosticism, which is why I wanted to kind of give everybody a baseline to start with. Because if I'm getting deep in the weeds on these individual Gnostic Christian sects, I wanted to kind of create a baseline where people say, okay, this is kind of generally Gnosticism. These are the interesting details of this particular sect. Speaking on uh, behalf of all of our listeners who are as ignorant about Gnosticism as I am, I thank you in advance for taking the time to put this together. You are welcome. All right, let's get into this. Gnosticism, like I said, it's a wide variety of different sects, and really Gnosticism is a philosophy more than a religion in its own right. It has calved off Gnostic variants of other religions and lots and lots of different variations of Gnostic Christianity, some Gnostic Judaism, a few other pagan faiths had Gnostic versions. It was mostly a, really a thing that started in the second century, late second century on. Yeah, I see you hear that uh, there's apparently Gnostic Zoroastrian sects. Uh, not exactly. In that case, what we're really talking about is Zoroastrianism being kind of a, a precursor element, certain Zoroastrian elements being pulled into Gnosticism. Gotcha. Gnosticism comes from the ancient Greek word gnosis, means having knowledge. It's heavily influenced by Greek mythic philosophers, notably Pythagoras, who has a very mathematical view of how the universe is created, and Plato, whose philosophy of the ideal, especially as seen in the Republic, really comes into play in Gnosticism. It is primarily defined in a Christian context. Many individual elements predate Christianity. 
but it only really came together as a relatively cohesive belief system in the second century, and really the late second century. So let's go over the precepts of it. All right. Gnosticism starts outside the material universe with a single, remote, supreme, divine figure. This is sometimes called the monad. It's always a monadic figure, not just a single god, but a single source of pure thought and ideal. Imagine the thing that existed before the Big Bang that is also God. And even that's not quite right, because the Big Bang is all about creating the material universe, and we're nowhere near that point yet, okay? Okay. One of the more common names for this, and again, different Gnostic sects, depending on where exactly they're drawing inspiration from, and what language they speak, and you know that sort of thing, have different words for these things. Uh, but sometimes this is called the pleroma, which is a word meaning totality, or bythos, which means depth or profundity. There are a lot of other names for this. So you have this monad, this supreme divine figure, and other divine beings emanate from this monad, and these are called aeons. Those of you who have played Final Fantasy games and immediately said, oh, that's where aeons come from, you're right. These aeons have a variety of different classifications and names and descriptions, because every form of Gnosticism organizes and names them differently. Basically, they're coming up with their own lists of them. Marcus, and we'll talk about him and his form of Gnosticism later on, defined them by number and sound. They had a sound associated to them. Again, a very Pythagorean model. Valentinianism describes male and female pairs, 30 pairs called syzygies. And that's where that thing in Dungeons of Dreadmore comes from. Yes. Also, there's a Ice Age, Magic the Gathering card called Syzygy, I believe. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's real bad. That's where most cards from Ice Age Yeah, but I had a bunch of them, because it was a common. I probably have a bunch kicking around in boxes, too, then. Yeah. So, Aeons are purely ideal in the Platonic sense. Those of you who have not studied much Plato, I, I got two in high school, but not everyone may have done so. Plato's philosophy posits that there is an ideal of every thing in the universe that exists on a realm of pure thought. For example, there is... You and I see chairs. Right. Out there in this realm of pure thought, there is the ultimate ideal of a chair. The essential truth of chairness. The most comfortable, the most ergonomic, no, the no, no. best-looking chair? No. The one that is most essentially a chair. Okay. It, it, enca it encapsulates all the elements of a chair to the fullest extent possible and is the source of everything we think of when we think of a chair. It is the chariest chair that ever chaired, huh? Right. It may be a comfortable chair, it may be an uncomfortable chair, but it is the most chariest. And yes, that's a silly way to say it, but that's about as close as we can get, because I don't speak ancient Greek and it's been a long time since I've read The Republic. Um... No, I'm just thinking that's probably something that should go on a t-shirt at some point. The most probably. chariest. The thing is, all of these other chairs that we see, according to Plato, are reflections of this true chair, right? They are illusionary and incomplete copies of the chair. Um, the famous example of the shadows on the wall. Oh, uh, Plato's cave? Right. Gotcha. Okay, that's the same idea that he's trying to illustrate. Now, these aeons are not representing chairs. They're representing universal concepts like mind and truth and wisdom and life. There are these immaterial hypostases, and again, 
Remember that word we used when we were talking about the Trinity, hypostases? We, we translate that as persons when we're talking about the Trinity. Mm -hmm. That's the same word for the same reason. Okay. Again, at this point, we have not yet created the material universe. We're existing in a realm of pure thought, kind of above the material world. The gaming ideas are writing themselves in my brain, unbidden, as you describe this stuff. Excellent. Now, there is generally a progression of these aeons, and these aeons each have a flaw or a passion or a sin inherent to them, and they get less and less pure, if you will, as they get further and further away from that supreme, divine, monadic figure. Again, there's tons of variation here, so the organization of this varies a lot. But generally speaking, you have this progression, okay? Okay. The last of these, through kind of the fullest expression of this idea of sin or error, creates the Demiurge. The Demiurge is, again, borrowed from Platonic philosophy. It's the figure responsible for creating the material universe. So at last, we have come to the thing that makes the world. The English word demiurge is indirectly derived from the Greek demiurgos, which literally translates as public worker, but colloquially it means craftsman or artisan or creator. Uh, it kind of started as craftsman and ended up being a, a little higher than that, meaning the creator of something. Much in the way that we would say um, artisan instead of uh, manufacturer or something. Yeah, exactly. It's got a kind of a higher tone to it. But okay. it is still, and this is important, it is an error. The Demiurge is an accident or a sin. In one, for example, uh, Wisdom tries to create something without uh, her corresponding male influence, her corresponding male Aeon, and that creates the Demiurge. Okay. The Demiurge is a lesser or false god, and it creates the material universe in kind of an echo of the divine model of that higher realm of pure thought. In some Gnostic systems, this is accidental and unconscious. It may not even know that there is a realm of pure thought or a god that it is unconsciously copying. Okay, okay? so this is the, the whole platonic ideal thing that you were describing, but on a much, much larger scale. Instead of it being the individual thing like the chair, we're talking about the whole universe here, right? Right. The whole universe is a illusionary reflection of that realm of pure thought. Okay. And in a sense, the Demiurge is an illusionary, error-filled reflection of that monadic source that it is ultimately derived from. All right. In some of these systems, this is accidental and unconscious, and it's just fundamentally flawed, and the whole material world is just, as it happens fundamentally flawed. Okay. In other systems, the Demiurge is actively and malevolently opposed to the monad, and the creation of the material universe is an attempt to trap the divine within the material, this lesser material, like surrounding something pure with dross to hide it. Sometimes this is done through envy, sometimes it's done just anger, there's, there's different mythological dramas that are created to explain what happens. There is definitely some uh, parallel here between the um, the War in Heaven story with Lucifer falling and this. Well, really, it's the other way around, because, of course, all that tends to kind of... Well, yeah, but I mean, there's, there's similar narrative elements, is what I'm saying. Right, and you can definitely see where those parallels are. Yeah. Right? They're, they're pretty obvious. And in this case, not only is the Demiurge evil... 
But the entire material world is inherently evil, being made in an attempt to trap the perfect divine world in some way. Okay. Again, the material world and the demiurge as well, in most cases, is illusionary. It's that imperfect copy of that higher level reality. Another good example, consider a landscape and then consider a painting of that landscape. It might be a really good painting, but it is not the same thing as the landscape. Heck, I'll give you an even better example. Think of the uh, mountains that we drove through on the way down to visit you guys recently, and then imagine a picture of those mountains. The effect is not the same. Right. It's fundamentally different. Yeah. And even though the cell phone picture replicates every detail, it still doesn't have the same effect on you. I mean, it's, it's a more perfect replica than a painting would be, right? But it still isn't going to give you the sense of, like, awe and majesty of looking up at this craggy, tree-covered, right. you know, mountainside. Right. It is not the same thing. Yeah. Exactly. All right, so we've talked about a lot of stuff. Let's take a break and look at where we are right now in our Gnostic cosmology. Okay? Okay. We've established what is basically a dualistic realm. At one end, you have this monadic supreme figure and this higher world of pure thought. And then at the other end, down that chain of aeons, you have the demiurge and the material world. So you have a descent from perfection and what is generally described as the light of pure thought to imperfection, evil, and darkness in the material world. And you have this remote creator because, of course, it's at the other end of this hypostatic universe of thought from the material world. Right. This remote god is as far away from the material world as possible. And then on our end, there is this demiurge and the material world and everything is darkness and imperfect and possibly, depending on which sect you're looking at, evil. Okay. okay. That kind of implies a loose dualism, okay? Yeah. Most forms of Gnosticism have this dualism, and we're going to be talking about these variations of dualism in future episodes when we talk about specific forms of Gnosticism. Not every Gnostic sect is really dualist, but most exhibit that. So this has a couple of implications, especially for Gnostics. First, if the material world is evil, or at best, a big mistake, in the Douglas Adams, this has widely been regarded as a bad move kind of way, there's really not much reason to focus on the material world very much. So Gnosticism lends itself very well to asceticism. You deny the body and its material needs in order to focus on the spiritual, because the body is illusion and the spiritual is real, or the body is an evil prison containing the spark of Gnostic divinity trapped within you. Right. Either one of those makes fine justification for being very ascetic. Right. So Gnosticism and asceticism really go hand in hand, which caused some problems for early church fathers because early church fathers were generally fine with asceticism, but they didn't like how the Gnostics justified their asceticism. Well, asceticism is hardly uh, unique to Christianity. I mean, Hindus, Buddhists, I mean, you can rattle off a whole list of exactly. spiritual beliefs. And Paul was certainly not encouraging asceticism. No. Moderation, definitely, but not asceticism. Right. And that's, again, remember, everybody in the early church is writing in this Hellenistic, Romanized world, which is all kind of influenced by Plato and Pythagoras. So there are a lot of these elements, kind of regardless. There's a lot of, well, we like that, but you're still wrong. <laughs> which causes some problems in the early church. Yeah. Now, the second part of this, 
Depending on the religious tradition incorporating Gnosticism, typically what happens is that the creator god of that religion becomes associated with this evil demiurge figure, right? Because the god who creates the material world is evil or at best misguided. So if it's drawing heavily from Zoroastrianism, this becomes Ahriman. El, which is a name often found in the Psalms, it kind of refers to God or a collection of gods. It's a little fuzzy. I'm a little fuzzy on it. Yahweh becomes the Demiurge in some of these. Samael, which is an Aramaic name. Or Satan, because if, well, we're talking about the evil force, clearly Satan must have created the world because that's the obvious person to associate with the Demiurge. Boy, that really conflicts with Genesis 1-1. Or, well, not just Genesis 1-1, sorry, sick brain. The part at the beginning of Genesis where it says God looked upon what his what he had created and saw that it was good. That is a direct contradiction of that. That's the part that most opponents of Gnosticism will quote first off, is, look, God looks at this and says, this is good. And the whole point of Gnosticism is, this is at best an error. So, the Demiurge has created this material world, typically with help from angels or archons he has created. Uh, if you're wondering where the term archon comes from, it's typically a Gnostic term. But remember how I said that in some of these versions of Gnosticism, the evil Demiurge has created the world to try and trap some part of the divine? Right. Typically, again, there's some mythic drama in which some divine element becomes embedded in the world. Maybe it's trapped malevolently. Maybe it accidentally falls into the world. Maybe it is sent into the world. It kind of depends. Okay. But the whole point of Gnosticism is to achieve salvation from this illusionary material world by awakening that spark, that gnosis, within each person. Doing so frees the spark, the soul, if you will, from its material prison, and you attain enlightenment and, ideally, leave the material world behind. Now this is starting to sound a bit like Nirvana, and I don't mean the band from the 90s. No. There was a theory held for some time before ultimately rejected that Gnosticism was really kind of rooted in Buddhism. The times don't line up well, but there are certain similarities. Parallel development, as it were? Yes, yeah, some of the same ideas. Uh, the idea that this whole world is a trap and the whole point is to escape it seems to be a fairly common human concern. Yeah. One other note, often the Archons are actively presenting obstacles to this ascent, from the material to that spiritual, philosophical realm of pure thought. Now, both that divine spark of knowledge within each person and the process of attaining full enlightenment are both called Gnosis. And generally, the Gnosis belongs to an elite who can learn and understand these divine mysteries. Ultimately, Gnosticism is kind of a mystery cult. This is the truth of the world and the truth of the universe, and the, here's the mystery that's been revealed. You get to understand it. Okay. And try and use that knowledge to escape it. Now, I said that most Gnostic sects tend to kind of be related to Christianity. Yeah. And that is true. There are others, but due to where Gnosticism originated, Gnosticism tends to most heavily be concerned with and involved with Christianity. The salvation doctrine of most Gnostic sects generally include some figures who guide humans toward Gnosis. And many Gnostic Christian sects identify Jesus as the supreme being, that remote figure who became incarnate in the material realm to bring Gnosis to the world. Okay, and this is the monad that you referenced at the beginning right. of this episode? 
right. This is God, that good remote God, entering into the world, incarnate, to bring Gnosis into the world. Okay. So, kind of close. Yeah. Sort of, to general Trinitarian Nicene Christianity. Yeah. Right? Enough similarities where you can see why the appeal was there, at least. Sure. Other Gnostic Christians saw Jesus as a purely human teacher who achieved Gnosis and taught or attempted to teach his disciples to achieve that same Gnosis. Nothing divine about him except that he realized that salvation and found his way out and was trying to teach his disciples to do the same thing. Others, specifically the Mandaeans... That's not hard to pronounce at all. It's terrible. Mandaeans saw Jesus as a false messiah who perverted correct Gnostic teachings taught to him by John the Baptist. And then others identified other salvific figures like Seth, who is the third son of Adam and Eve, and a few others. Which is at least a slightly less bonkers theory than the last one. Oh, we haven't even... Listen, I'm looking forward to talking to you about Sethians, because they were snake worshippers. <laughs> we, ha- we have yet to get into bonkers. Gotcha. That's Gnosticism in a nutshell. It's a big nutshell, I know, but that's basically Gnosticism. First off, like I said, lots and lots and lots of variations on all of these things, okay? But that's kind of the core similarity that runs through most forms of Gnosticism. You have this dualistic universe, a descent, purity to corruption and illusion, and we live at the wrong end of things and are trying to escape it and get into that pure realm of thought. Okay. A couple other notes and just a, a couple other... Places where this has been influential. Gnostic Judaism is a thing, or was. Early Gnosticism was actually very heavily influenced by Judaism. Many early Gnostic texts reference it specifically and often actively reject the Jewish God, right? The God of the Jews is someone that they, you know, this is, this is evil. Again, remember we're talking about the creator God, Yahweh. Many of them say, no, no, that's the Demiurge, that's evil, we don't want that. But they're referring to the God of the Jews specifically. Early church fathers often identified heads of Gnostic schools as Jewish Christians, and you see a lot of Hebrew naming in Gnosticism. Aeons, Archons, etc. are all named with Jewish names. Quick side note, you see a ton of that stuff in uh, fantasy and gaming, too. Right. Those of you who have played Xenosaga or Xenogears may remember the Zohars, those big monument things. I never played a lot of it, Um, but, you know, the big monument things floating in space that have Hebrew letters on the side. That's all a Gnostic reference, and specifically it's a Kabbalistic reference. Kabbalah is kind of a cousin of Jewish Gnosticism. It grew up independently of the main line of Jewish Gnosticism, but ended up in the same place. Features a lot of Gnostic ideas, but in its own unique take on things. Uh, If you've ever seen the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, that's basically the Aeon's and that whole realm laid out in that Gnostic way. It originated in 13th century Provence, France. Incidentally, Catharism, which was a 13th century form of Gnostic Christianity, coexisted with Kabbalah in Provence. Both of them were centered in Provence and France in the 13th century. That appears to be entirely coincidental. 13th century France was ripe for this kind of thinking? Is there some specific reason why, or...? You know, without knowing more about the history of it, I couldn't tell you. Okay. But it's not like, hey, here's Gnostic Christians, and some Jews came over and created Kabbalah because they got 
infected with Gnosticism or whatever, right. or the other way around, it appears to have just grown up independently there. Perhaps hmm. there was a collection of texts there that people read. I have no idea. But it really does appear to be entirely coincidental because Kabbalah draws almost entirely from those old Jewish Gnostic traditions, not any sort of Gnostic Christianity. Go figure. Huh. Interesting. A weird coincidence. And Kabbalah is still around today. You can walk into my yeah. workplace and buy books on Kabbalah. Yep. It's still kind of a, a popular form of safe occultism. <laughs> Considered to be such at any rate. Yeah. Gnosticism is still kind of influential. It's not a mainline philosophy, but it keeps cropping up in places. Your 19th and tw early 20th century occultists, Helena Blav uh, Blavatsky and Aleister Crowley, both of them heavily influenced by Gnosticism. Uh, Crowley's and Blavatsky's theosophy drew very, very heavily from Kabbalah and other Gnostic forms. And if you want to learn more about them, I believe Ken and Robin talk about stuff that covered both of them specifically in episodes. Yes, and generally the orders that they founded also talk about it. Anytime you're talking about theosophy, you're talking about kind of a modern-day take on some Gnostic ideas and white magic and things like that. But even, uh, you know, rational thinkers like Carl Jung were influenced by Gnosticism and generally in favor of it. It's one of those things that where it just kind of keeps showing up and, pe and people going, oh, that's an idea. Surely no one's thought of that before. Actually, yeah, it turns we out. should have pulled out the uh, verse from Ecclesiastes about nothing being new under the sun. Yeah. So we've got a little time left. So I wanted to talk about one specific and interesting Gnostic text. Hang on just a second. There wasn't too much to this. You've given us a 30-minute lecture on this thing. There is a ton on this. Yeah, but it's going to edit down. It's fun. I don't think it's going to edit down all that much, Grant. There's there's quite a bit here. There's a lot of material. I'm not complaining, but there's a lot all of right. material. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. But I wanted to talk about the Gospel of Judas. Okay. Because, first off, it's named the Gospel of Judas, and that is inherently interesting, right? Yeah. So this is a specific Gnostic text which only very recently came to light. It really wasn't examined and translated until 2001. We have a number of sources of Gnostic texts. Many first-hand texts, not just people talking about them, but many first-hand texts, were discovered in 1945 in Nag Hammadi, or right outside Nag Hammadi in Upper Egypt. There were these 12 papyrus codices, leather-bound, found buried in a sealed jar. And those 12 volumes contained a total of 52 treatises. Most of them were Gnostic texts, but not all. Uh, it appears to have been a library from a Gnostic monastery that was shut down. Okay, quick historical question. Was this the part of 1945 before or after World War II ended? I am not sure. Certainly by that time, though, the war had moved out of North yeah, Africa. Yeah, it, it definitely had, but just... It, it was found by a farmer, so it may have had nothing to do with the war. Okay, there goes my Indiana Jones-esque stuff. Well, listen, if you want a good gaming hook... Yeah. 1945, into the war, they find these volumes, it has secret, hidden knowledge. Unless we can go back to the Dan Brown effect from the last uh, episode. Exactly. Go nuts. So that's where we get most of our texts. In the 1970s, another leather-bound papyrus document, which was known as the Codex Chacos, was discovered in Egypt. And after a great deal of very poor handling by inexperienced antiquities dealers, it finally was examined by professionals and translated in 2001. And by inexperienced antiquities dealers, I mean people tried to freeze it to preserve it. Which is, by the way, terrible, because 
that causes the top layer of the paper to flake off, taking the ink with it. Oh, that's not good. Also, various pages appear to have been sold independently, and it's generally a mess. But this whole codex includes four early Gnostic texts from about 300 AD. The Letter of Peter to Philip, the First Apocalypse of James, which I want to try and find on my own anyway, because that sounds fun. Yeah. A fragmentary piece of The Book of the Stranger. Which also sounds like it would be fun to find. Yep. And The Gospel of Judas. Which doesn't sound like it should be possible. Right. We actually knew about The Gospel of Judas beforehand. It was known because of Irenaeus of Lyon's work on the detection and overthrow of the so-called Gnosis, or more commonly, against heresies. That was written in about 180 A.D., and Irenaeus is arguing against what's contained in the Gospel of Judas. Remember how we talked about in our first Historical Heresies episode, the um, Ebionites, where we didn't know much about them except from people arguing against them? Right. This was the same kind of thing. We had people who had summarized it to oppose it, and that was all we knew about this particular text. Okay, so this was quite the archaeological find, if nothing else. Oh, yeah, huge. So, it's 16 chapters... And it purports to be Jesus' teaching about cosmology and spiritual truths. It claims to be, and I quote, a secret account of the revelation that Jesus spoke in conversation with Judas Iscariot. Now, in this book, Jesus teaches to his disciples, and most of the disciples don't grasp those truths, these Gnostic truths. Only Judas really understands them. Judas is the one disciple who understands the true secret meaning of what Jesus is teaching, and in some cases, Jesus takes Judas aside to teach him things because he's the only one who will understand. There's very little narrative, right? Most of the Gospels have a narrative element that describes the life of Jesus as he's teaching. There's very, very little of that in this particular work. There's also a creation story. It echoes that Gnostic formula that we've just talked about. The details are different. Again, most of the details are different in various different forms of Gnosticism. And it also features examples of Jesus leaving his material body, being a creature of pure intellect, and assuming other forms, because all form is illusion. Okay, so this is obviously my 21st century Methodist Christian perspective speaking, but how in the world was this compelling at all? I mean, this is this has got so many red flags that say heretical claptrap all over it that well, I'm surprised you can see through the field. Remember that, you know, we're talking about a very Hellenized world. Right. So this Greek philosophy is very prominent, because the Romans basically said, oh, Greece, you've got culture, we'll steal that and make it our own. Right. They pretty much copied and renamed the Pantheon and yeah. so on and so forth. all that forth. good stuff, because they were good at conquering, and the Greeks were good at coming up with things. Marriage made it sore point. <laughs> but that's okay, because it ends up basically kind of spreading these ideas everywhere. And like I said, Gnosticism is, it, the appeal is that it is secret knowledge. And that because you understand it, you are enlightened by having it. And, you, you know, you know secret truths of the universe and that sort of thing. It's what's attractive about a lot of occultism. This is the same thing that makes rules lawyers a thing. Uh, I'm being a little bit sarcastic here, but not yeah, really. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll have that conversation another day, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's kind of some of the appeal of Gnosticism. Plus, it creates this universe where, you know, your suffering is because this world is inherently awful. So, one of the key things about the Gospel of Judas, and this is one of the things that made probably the biggest splash when it was translated, 
was that it seems to claim that Judas was only following Jesus' instructions when he handed him over to the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, so that Jesus could be freed from the lesser material world and go back to, you know, that realm of pure thought. Did they theorize that that's why Judas committed suicide shortly thereafter? Well, that's not in that gospel. There is no mention of his death, although Judas has a vision of being stoned by the other disciples. Okay. Again, we're talking about a completely different gospel where those main four gospels that you and I take as truth are not considered as such. So right. be aware of that. We're talking about competing worldviews about God and the universe. I, I just, yeah, that would seem to be an element that would fit neatly into what we've been discussing so far. So right. That's why I ask. It's worth pointing out that there's a lot of scholarly debate about this. To a certain degree... There was kind of an impetus to make a big splash with the Gospel of Judas because National Geographic kind of funded the whole translation thing. They did a TV special about it, and if you've seen National Geographic television, you know it's, you know, these are things like, oh, mermaids are real. We totally made up this thing, but we're going to treat it like a documentary. You know, it's, yeah, splashy is definitely the word to use here. Right. Having said that, this was 2006. You know, it's not like they have not revealed the whole text. You know, other folks have looked at it. Right. There's a lot of debate about it. You know, some scholars say, this is not Judas is going to go up to heaven, much to the surprise of everyone else. It's saying Judas is going to be denied entry to heaven, which will be a surprise to him. You know, there's a lot of argument about interpretation. Various passages are interpreted very differently depending on maybe some bias and maybe some of just what you think it says. Okay. okay. And that can really change the whole thrust of the work. But apart from that, it has the form of Plato's dialogues, where it's a dialogue between a student and a teacher, and it has that same speculative air of Plato's works. Remember, the myth of Atlantis comes from Plato's works, right? They're kind of just making up this mythic city out in the ocean, and, you know, it's got this same speculative, hey, you know, let's imagine this take on argument, where they're right. kind of creating a setting and a world to argue points in. But it is not the same thing as saying, this is the way that the world is. Plato at no point argued for the historical truth of Atlantis, but the fundamental philosophical points that he was arguing, he held to be true. Right. 200 or 1,000 years pass, and people are looking for something that was essentially a word picture. Right. Yeah. It's a parable, is yeah. basically what yeah. Atlantis is. And there's a certain element of that here, although not as strongly. Again, it's influenced by that same literary tradition. And that's Gnosticism. And that's an interesting Gnostic text. Oof, that is a brainful. It's a brainful. So to wrap up real quick, dualism, the material world is illusionary or evil, and you can escape it by knowing that it is illusionary or evil and doing things to avoid it. Get rid of the body, focus on the soul. That's fundamentally Gnosticism. We're going to be talking about a lot of different forms of Gnosticism. Some of this is going to go probably up to the 7th century, just different okay. forms of it. It's still kind of early church, and frankly, some Gnostic variants in that 7th century time frame are still really interesting. I don't think that I'm going to go to Catharism, but... Well, why not? We should probably hit them if we've referenced them in this. Yeah, all right, fair enough. I'll make sure to include that at some point, too. If nothing else, it gives us a chance to talk about a different time period. Exactly. And a crusade. And yeah. who doesn't like talking about a crusade, right? Yeah, or different time periods for that matter. Right. 
I think that's everything I've got to dump on you about Gnosticism. And I think that's about as much as my voice can handle tonight, so that's good. All right. Uh, those of you who have corrections, please post them in the comments. I'm doing my best to parse this for everyone. I am not a, an expert on this, but I'm, I'm trying to be diligent in my reading. But that doesn't mean I didn't miss anything. Please, if you've got corrections, post them in the comments. I want to hear about them as much as anyone else, just to make sure I'm getting everything right. I hope you're excited about this. I certainly am. I want to keep this going. Uh, we're going to probably take a little bit of a break from this Historical Heresies series just going forward, because we're kind of getting into the holiday season. But we'll certainly be coming back to it, I think, probably with more frequency than we did the Virtues and Vices series. But I'm not sure about that. We'll kind of play that well, by Well, if ear. nothing else, we've probably got more episodes in us for this one. So Yeah, there's that. But, you know, we've got some guests we want to bring on and that sort of thing. And Yeah. Yeah. We've grown as a podcast, and we have other things to talk about, and people to talk about those things with, so there we yes. go. Yes, and part of growing as a podcast it means that we've gotten access to people that we didn't even know existed originally, so exactly. that's pretty cool. Yeah, so that's fun. Well, listen, from both Peter and myself, who I'm sure would like a chance to rest his voice, have a good one, take it easy, we will catch you next time. See you then. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.